Let me pray for us, and let's get in the Word. Father God, thank You. Thank You that You meet us in this season. Lord, You meet us all the time, but Father, would You help us turn our attention to You, posture ourselves, that we may hear from You today. Lord, we love You, and as You speak through Your Word, Holy Spirit, uh, help, help us not to just be those who hear the Word, but those who put it into practice. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we began our contemplation of the Christmas season by working our way through the beginning of Isaiah chapter 9, where the prophet Isaiah describes this incredible Savior who is to come and all that he's going to be. He's so magnificent that he carries a bunch of titles. Here's how Isaiah 9, 6 puts it. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, Jesus is all these things and much more. And the, and the first title we read about him is that he's called Wonderful Counselor. Now, it's a great title, but the, that title, Wonderful, has kind of lost its power in our culture. I mean, we've been selling stuff to each other for so long and using so many superlatives that when we get to someone who deserves them, we don't even know what to do with it. I mean, the old joke goes, you know, man makes a vacuum cleaner. And how does he describe it? It's terrific. It's amazing. It's a life-changing vacuum cleaner, right? God, and it tells us in the book of Genesis, he makes everything. And he makes the Pacific Ocean. And what does he call it? It's good, right? We're oversellers, right? There's a, there's a place, you know, think about title Wonderful. There's a place now down the road here in Wakanda called Wonderful Lashes. The guy who's on Shark Tank is called Mr. Wonderful. When I was a kid, we had wonder bread. Are these things full of wonder? Do they induce wonder? Do you walk into wonderful lashes and come out of there and go, how could my lashes be so on fleek? It's wondrous, right? Look, I get it. They're not going to just name the place Decent Lashes or change the guy's name on Shark Tank to Mr. Just Like Everybody Else or call it, hey, you want some normal bread? But we need to fight through that misappropriation of the word so we can consider what it means when it describes Jesus, who truly is wonderful, who induces us to wonder, who fills us with awe, is someone uh, completely outside of our experience, something new and greater. And we see the evidence in his life. Uh, Jesus amazed those around him. Everywhere he goes, there's, there's more than two dozen places in the New Testament where people are amazed at what Jesus does or says, uh, miracles that he does, what he's teaching, how he healed. Uh, when they first heard him teach in, in Luke 4.22, it says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? You know, as someone who's taught lots and lots, I rarely do all speak well of me afterward. You know, there's always someone in the back going, but when Jesus spoke, people couldn't help but say, that's amazing. I mean, and they'd been working their way through the same things Jesus was talking about for hundreds and thousands of years. It felt like everything had been said, everything but the right thing, everything but how Jesus would talk about it. So much so that people were astonished at the truth when they heard it. Later on in that same passage in Luke chapter 4, he casts out a demon. Listen to how people respond. Luke 4, 36. It says, All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! With authority 
and power. He gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. Jesus could command the spiritual world. He could release people from, the oppre- from evil oppression, from the being held down by evil spirits with a word. And people were like, no one can do that. Not until Jesus came along. He was wonderful, amazing. In Mark 10, 26, he has this encounter with a rich young ruler. And look, if you're a rich young ruler, you're a young hotshot who's got a lot of cash, you know how people talk to the people who are rich? Very nice. Very nice to rich people because we somehow think, maybe this rich person will give me some money. Maybe they'll do something nice for me. And so rich people are often lied to. They often have smoke blown at them, told how great they are. Not when Jesus interacts with them. Jesus tells them the hard truth. He says, actually for you, your money's getting in the way. It's making you think you're righteous. Because you know what you need to do? You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And right in that moment, people stared at him. Mark 10, 26. It said in this moment, here's an itinerant preacher who doesn't ask the rich guy for money. Who instead speaks hard truth to him. It says the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? See, Jesus didn't just make people be full of wonder. He caused them to wonder, to consider, to think about their own lives. Do I, you met Jesus, you talked to Jesus, you heard him speak, and when, you were, when he was done, you go, wait, I think I need to change. I think I don't understand God. I'm not as righteous as I thought I was. It caused you to wonder and marvel and go, who is this? And what about me? How does my life respond to him? He's wonderful in the truest sense. But that's not even his whole title. He's not just called wonderful. It says he's called wonderful counselor. That he brings perfect counselor, counsel to those who seek him. And the title here has kind of a kingly connotation. And it fits. Jesus doesn't just give good advice. He brings counsel. He brings wisdom that he backs up with power. And there's a difference there, right? Advice is cheap. It has no investment, no power. Counsel is invested. It costs the counselor something. It's a lean in. It's a wanting to get involved. The example I think of comes from John chapter 11. Jesus has some close friends, Mary and Martha, and they have a brother named Lazarus. And Lazarus has died, and Jesus and his disciples go to see the the sisters in their mourning after his death. Let's pick it up in verse 17 of John 11. So John chapter 17, verse 11. It should be on our screen here. It says, Upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now Jesus is quite well known at this time. He's been preaching and healing, and he developed a following. He'd also caught the attention of the corrupt religious leadership. See, Bethany as a town is right outside of Jerusalem. And the last time that Jesus had come to Jerusalem, he had so bothered the religious establishment that they tried to stone him. And it's not like Jesus can sneak in anywhere. Crowds follow him. He and the disciples will be in danger just by showing up. He can't just put on a baseball hat and sunglasses and pretend he's not Jesus that day. 
But he goes anyway, even though he knows that it's going to be a dangerous place. And in fact, the disciples, knowing they're going into danger, in fact, Thomas, the guy who's famous for doubting, he's the one who says, let's go and die with Jesus. You've got to give him some props for that. And so they show up. See, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were early followers of Jesus. And so when he's on his way into town, Martha comes out and goes and meets Jesus on the road uh, where the crowds of people that were around them aren't. Verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. See, Jesus comes and he gets involved. His presence changes the situation. He takes the time to reframe what has happened for Martha. Her brother's dead. She's obviously grieving. It's what we do when we lose someone. But this is not going to be a normal grieving. Even life and death change when Jesus is around. See, in verse 24, Martha states this Jewish belief in the resurrection. There's a life past this life. This was actually a point of division among the Jews. Some believed in the resurrection, others did not. And Jesus confirms, yes, there'll be a resurrection, but it's not about what you think it is. Because you're resurrected, your resurrection is focused on Him. It's focused on Jesus. It's focused on relationship with him. He was going to be the key to everlasting life. It was part of the contention they had was understanding how the resurrection would work and then bringing it back to this focus of being on the Messiah clears it up. It's why Jesus is such a wonderful counselor, right? And Martha's response is full of faith. She believes that Jesus is the promised Savior. She may not know exactly what's going to happen next, but she trusts Jesus. Verse 28, after she'd said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here... My brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man had kept this man from dying? It's interesting to see how Jesus interacts with the two women differently. Remember, Martha is the practical one. She's the one, earlier on, she's up doing and, and checking off her list. And, and when she leaves to go meet with Jesus, no one comes with her. You get that she's not the dramatic one. She's the practical one. When she leaves, the mourners stay in the house. And when Jesus talks to her, they just talk about truth. He says, this is how it's going to be, Martha. And she goes, but what about this? And he goes, don't you believe this and this? She goes, okay, I get it. They have this conversation, practical. Jesus meets her in her intellectual concerns about the resurrection. But how does he deal with Mary? 
Mary's the one, remember, who was at his feet when, there, when Martha was so busy. Mary's the emotional one. When, when Mary moves, everyone goes with her because Mary's, oh, right, here comes everybody with Mary. When Mary leaves, all the ladies come with her. Oh, Mary's crying. Both sisters lost a brother. One leaves, no one goes with her. They're like, if we go with Martha, we're going to end up having to clean something. I guarantee you. But if we go with Mary, we can just mourn and maybe there'll be Kanish, you know, whatever, right? And they all go together, right? And so the first thing that Jesus does with Mary is not tell her the truth. He weeps. He meets her in her emotion. And look, just an aside, there's no right way to grieve. Some people grieve like Martha. They do and accomplish and organize. And others, they need to sit and process and be sad and weep. And still others, a combination of the two things. Look, when I, when I grieve, I like to sit and tell stories of that person and learn about them and laugh and lament. And I like to hear all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. And look, here's the thing. I, when I go to a funeral, I'm at a funeral, and people just tell the good side of the story, I feel like we didn't really grieve. That's the way I, I like to know the whole deal. I like to hear about all the hard stuff. When my grandmother died, God rest her soul, every single person who spoke that day found some way to say what a pain in the rear my grandma was. And you know what that did for me? It made me realize we were mourning my actual grandmother. When the priest who didn't know her was talking about her, I was like, who's that lady? I don't know who that lady is. I know this lady here. I know this lady who was a pain. I know her, right? And so Jesus meets us in all those places. We don't have to hide the truth from him. We don't have to pretend something was better than it was when we come to Jesus. We don't have to mourn and go, oh, we lost an angel. We can say, we lost a regular person who had some good days and some bad days. And there's some things I'm going to miss and some things, I'm, to, to be honest with, I'm happy I don't have to deal with anymore. And Jesus can meet us in the midst of that. And the mixed emotion I have about this person who was hard on me and we lost them, he can meet me there too. He gets all of that stuff, right? Jesus comes and he meets us whether we're practical or we're feeling things deeper. And so Jesus comes, right? And, and he's going to meet them in their place. He's going to tell them the truth about eternal life. But he's also going to bring comfort and presence and sit with us. That verse 37 where some say, how come he didn't come? And he, how come this guy who heals the blind, how come he didn't do this? It gives me some compassion for Jesus. And how annoying it had to be to be him sometimes. Look, he shows up. He mourns, he comforts the sisters, and people are like, couldn't he have stopped him from dying? It's crazy to me how people want to tell Jesus how to do his job. And we do this all the time. How come God didn't stop this or that? And I get it. Look, we hurt. We're hurting people. And we'll say, well, how come God didn't keep my mom from dying? Or how come God didn't prevent? You know, we had a terrible thing happen in town this week. There was a, a fire here, and two children lost their lives. And I'm sure many of us would say, man, why didn't you stop that, God? And, it's, and we can grieve that and be sad about it, but there's a little bit of a weird thing when we start telling God, you should have done this, God. If we start telling God how to do his job, what does that make us? That would make us God. And I, and I don't know about you, but I'd be terrible at it. I'd be the worst God ever, right? Nobody needs 12 Burger Kings in one town. You know what I'm saying? Like, that'd be, I'd be a terrible. And it makes me look a little bit when people give you unwanted parenting advice. And notice, I said advice, not counsel. And they're like, why don't you just tell your kid to do this? Or I would never let my kid do that. Well, great for you. I'm glad you know everything, but it's not your kid. 
You don't know the situation. Look, John always wears a tuxedo to the dentist. He says he gets better toothbrushes that way, okay? He does what he does. And people tell God to do his job. The people are wondering to Jesus, how come you didn't do more? Jesus, why didn't you come sooner? Well, now you're too late, Jesus. Don't you care? You didn't show up, Jesus. That means you don't care. It means, oh, did you not have enough power to do it, Jesus? And they question. And maybe we've asked those kinds of questions to God when we're in the middle of our grief or we're experiencing a tragedy or a crisis. And they're, they're legitimate. I don't mean to sound callous here. But there's something greater going on. Remember who you're talking to when you're talking to Jesus. See, it turns out that Jesus knows what he's doing. And he came to counsel, to lean in, to get involved. And so everyone thinks the story of Lazarus is over, but here comes Jesus to the tomb. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. See, something has changed as Jesus approaches the tomb. He's met the sisters. He's wept. He's spoken truth. But now we see a different Jesus. The words here say that Jesus was deeply moved. And we have to stop for a moment and consider what deeply moves the heart of Jesus. And what does deeply moved mean anyway? You know, if we dig a little bit, we find there's a a word here underneath this expression. It's a word that describes an emotional state. And our first read here might be that Jesus is sad or he's broken or weepy. But if we said that, we would miss it. The word we use here that's translated to Jesus was deeply moved is the same word they use to describe the snort of an angry war horse. See, Jesus isn't weepy. He's sad and angry and grieving all together. I don't know how many of you guys have seen the movie The Force Awakens. But in The Force Awakens, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it eight years later, sorry, there's a scene in the movie where Han Solo dies. And after Han Solo dies, Chewbacca is there, his buddy, his right-hand man, his right-hand Wookiee, or whatever that is, right? And after Solo dies, Chewbacca goes, right? I can't do the Chewbacca voice, right? And he comes up. I had someone do it in first service. It was awesome. It was like, I still can't do it. And he comes up, and he takes that crossbow-type thing he has. I don't know why a laser needs to be a crossbow, but whatever. And all of a sudden, he's unbeatable. And Chewbacca's, uh, you know, fur... It stops all, you know, uh, all the blaster fire that comes to him, and he's suddenly just mowing down stormtroopers, who, by the way, are the worst marksmen in the whole planet, who's ever in charge of training the stormtroopers in marksmanship should be fired immediately. They're awful, right? And he wipes them all out, right? When Jesus comes to the tomb after seeing his friends in mourning, after considering his friend's death, maybe even after hearing those less than faithful question. How come he didn't come earlier? He comes to the tomb, not, Lazarus is dead. He comes up, the snort of the angry war horse comes out of Jesus. Now look, there's going to come a day when Jesus comes as king. The day we read about in Revelation. When he comes riding on a white horse and he's got Lord of Lords and King of Kings tattooed on his thighs and he has a sword coming out of his mouth and the armies behind him and it'll be beautiful and terrible. And, and that's not this day, right? This is the Jesus who's come as the suffering servant. But that king, that conquering king, he shows his face for a moment here. 
we get a little foreshadowing of that day. He's grieving over the loss, but he's angry. What's he angry at? I think he's angry at death itself. Look, for us, we've always known death. We think death is is natural. But to Jesus, death is the enemy. It's the interloper that came in the door opened by our sin and rebellion. He loves us, but he hates death. And so he snorts at the tomb and he starts giving instructions. Verse 39, take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. I mean, Martha is so practical. Maybe she thinks Jesus just wants to see the body. She wants to save him from the smell of death. And Jesus counsels her again with truth. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And I love this little moment of Jesus conversing with the Father, showing us his hand. Look, Jesus can do whatever he wants from wherever he wants. He didn't have to come to Bethany. We know. We've seen him heal like this. He could have healed from his house. He could have healed from the roadside. He could have done it behind his back. He could have winked at, boom, okay, Lazarus. He could do whatever he wants. He's Jesus. But why does he do it this way? Because he's showing the people that are there. He's showing Mary and Martha and the mourners and his disciples so that they might believe. And the story is being written down and told and read and told over and over again and preached today so that we might believe. And he turns his attention back to the tomb. Verse 43. When he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, I can't imagine that moment for real. I, I've been to a lot of funerals and, um, and nobody gets up. But apparently... When the author of life and death tells you to get up, you get up, whether you're dead or alive. I think of that little moment, a little taste. Uh, sometimes my son will be playing his video game with his headphones on, right? And you'll hear his mother be like, come on, let's go. Come on, buddy. And he pretends he cannot hear his mother, right? And if I'm there and I do not, I see the look on my wife's face, which is, I cannot say this one more time to this boy. And I go, John! And then pff, he comes up, right? I kind of imagine, because he knows that I have no problems taking away the switch, his room, his life, his house, and his future, right? I have no problem with that, right? And this is the voice here for Lazarus. I imagine Lazarus is just like in the tomb, right? And he's dead. And he's like, I'm dead. Here I am. I'm all dead right here. And they're like, oh, Lazarus, we loved you. He's like, whatever. Just a little more death, you know? But then when Jesus comes, and he's like, Lazarus! He's like, yes, yes, sir, right? When the Son of Man speaks, when the Savior speaks, life and death, they're under his authority. To him, it's, it's all impure spirits. He can do whatever he wants. 
Remember, he made the universe like this? Exist. That's what he does. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead so that many would believe. He wins out over death, and it's only a warm-up to his own battle with death, which is just a few clicks down the road from this story. But I want to focus today on the wonderful counselor, the awe-inspiring one who meets us where we are, who brings us what we need and asks us to trust him, that his plan of resolution, his timing, his way is better than our way. Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy here. He is the wonderful counselor. So what's our application? A couple things. One, don't miss the exact thing that Jesus said. I do this in front of you all so that you may believe that God sent me. Some of you who are watching today are people who've heard about Jesus but have never received him as Lord, who have not truly believed that he holds the power of life and death. You're not trusting your eternity to him. You're still trusting it to yourself. And so Jesus shows himself to that crowd. He authenticates his authority with the miracle of raising Lazarus. Later on, he authenticates his authority by the miracle of his own resurrection. I encourage you, if you don't believe those things about Jesus, do your homework. Ask around. Read the stories. Ask the hard questions. Consider, is the one who can bring himself back from the dead, is the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, is he the one you should be trusting with your own life, your own death, I implore you, seek Jesus in this and you'll find that he is exactly the one God sent. He's the one you've been meant to find all along. And put your trust in Christ and he will deliver because he always keeps his word. Secondly, you know, some of us, some of us who um, are Christ followers, we kind of forget about the wonderful counselor part. We forget about it when we're in the midst of crisis. Some of the old us comes out. We like turn into temporary atheists when things get hard. And we kind of do the thing we, would, we used to do. And look, I, I'm, I'm a hustler from way back. Look, I, I was raised by a dad that when you went to go and we were going to go play miniature golf and it was one price for 12 and under and another price for 12 and over, he didn't care that I was 17. He's like, that kid's nine. Like, I was 250 pounds. He's like, no, no, that kid's nine years old. He's a dollar cheaper. He's like, get on your knees, boy, and walk in, right? And sometimes, in hard places, that's exactly what I do too. I follow in that same way. I go, hey, how about we cut a little corner here? Why don't I just maneuver that over there? Why don't we tell a little white lie over here? It's like I forget that Jesus has the power to do what he needs to do. I forget that he's the one I need to go to in the middle of crisis in the middle of blessing, and say, Lord, what's your way in this? Just this week, I'm in my office, and one of our elders, uh, Steve, was in there, and I got some news in a, in a letter. It was kind of big news, and I was like, man, I, you know, and I, as soon as I get it, I go, you know, we should do this and this and this immediately, right? And, uh, and Steve goes, okay, all right, or, <laughs> or we could take a minute. We could, we could consider these things. We could pray. We could ask the Lord what he would have us do. And I'm like, that's why you're an elder, right? Right? And God wants to show off in those moments. 
He wants to get involved. It's how he builds faith, not just in us, but like everybody in the process. I got to have some fun this week and be a, a different role in that. Many times I've gotten to be the guy or be the church where we were able to ask the Lord for, and see his provision. This week I got to be a, a different link in the chain. We had a, a single mom who came in, very, very uh, new here, and just trying to figure out her faith. And she goes, I got in a real tough spot. And she's been through some hard stuff and some betrayals. She's got little kids at home and the stress of that. And she goes, I got in a hard spot. And she goes, I got to tell you what I would normally do in that situation. And she told me, and it was, it's sin. It's just sin. And she goes, but I've been, I've been trying, to do, trying to live different. And she goes, so there's a, a couple from here that's been reaching out to her. She goes, so I prayed. And I said, Lord, instead of me doing this, would, would you provide these things for my family? Can I, can I trust in you to provide? And, and she goes, and two minutes later, you called me. And see, I got to be another link in the chain. Someone else earlier had said, hey, I, I want to help somebody in need. I said, can you help find me someone in need? And I said, I'll, I'll, let me hang on to that. I said, I'm sure something will pop up, right? And then this, I hear about this lady, and I said, you know what? I'm going to give this lady a call and see if maybe she's that person. And I call this lady and I said, hey, somebody wants to help somebody. Can that person be you? And she goes, I just asked the Lord for this. And she said, I'm going to cry. And she sat in my office and she cried and I cried. You know, and she cried because her faith went, man, the Lord is my provider. Right? And I got to share in that work. I mean, God could have just done that directly. He could have left me out. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't do anything except make one phone call. And And I'm like, but he grew my faith to go, Gary, I got my hands on it. It's not, you're not the Savior, brother, right? I, I, I'm working on stuff. Like, have faith, you know? And be generous and, and look for opportunities and pray. And it's really changed us. This, this season has changed us as a church. Our, we said, we're, we're looking, we have our eyes out so that we can bless people because we know because God's going to provide. And over and over again in the course of the season, he has. And he's, he's let that run through us to build our faith. Not because we're particularly righteous, but to build our faith that our God is provider for us and for everyone else around us. It's been a beautiful way to live, and I think it's the way we're kind of designed to live. See, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. The way he counsels in your life will change you and cause you to wonder. And so you might say, well, how do, how do I do that? What does that look like? And I want to give you just a couple uh, little things. One is to make the invitation to Jesus and and invite him into whether it's a blessing or a crisis or an emergency or a tough relationship situation to say, all right, before I go and react out of my flesh, will you meet with me, Jesus? And then I'm going to ask you to go one brave step further. Because I think sometimes we do this thing. We say, Jesus, what should I do? And then when he tells us what to do, then we decide whether or not we're going to obey it. We flip the roles around. We make ourselves the judge. And we say, all right, you give me your advice, God, and I'll tell you if that'll work for me. But I think our relationship with the one we follow is different than that. We come and we say to Jesus, will you get involved? And whatever you want me to do, I give you my obedience first before I know the plan. I give you my obedience first, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I think when we, are, we have that relationship with God, it changes us. You know, one practice that helps in this that we've kind of gotten away from as a church culture is fasting. Fasting is a way that we set a posture before God. We turn off outside influences 
and we've got big decisions to make or we're facing uh, a thing that we're grieving about or we're facing a crisis, fasting is a way for us to say, Lord, I'm going to turn off everything else so that I can hear from you. And I'm going to wait on your timing and your direction and your way. And so that kind of a practice, whether you're fasting from food or fasting from media or whatever, that turns off those outside influences so that you can hear from the Lord is such a great practice for Christians and one that I would love to see grow and grow in our context here. That when people come and say, hey, I've got this going on, that we could say, let's fast on that together. Let's take that to the Lord for a day. Let's take it to the Lord for two days. Whatever that is, and wait on what He has to say. And let us declare our obedience to Him before we even have an answer from Him. Lord, Your way, not my way. Let's live that way as a church. I know many of you are in the middle of something right now. Come to Jesus with it. Lord, I, I, I resolve I'm going to obey you in this. Would you speak to me? And I think often when we give that obedience first, it triggers, it, it keys God to say, okay, they're ready to listen, I can speak. Let us be a church that moves forward that way. Let us be a people who move forward that way. Let us be families and individuals who are able to hear these things from God and obey Him. Let that be true of us. Let us worship and follow after our wonderful counselor, Jesus. Let me pray that for us. Father God, thank you for this morning, for time in your word, for the way that you speak and what you do. Lord, I confess to you, too often I become an atheist in hard moments. Lord, may I invite your work, your way, giving you the credit, giving you the obedience before even knowing your plan. Lord, help me seek you in your word, Lord, for every situation. Let me seek counsel from those who love you, not those who tell me what, I'm gonna, what I want to hear. Father, thank you that you are the one who has authority over life and death, and you have used it to substitute your death for our life. Father, we trust you, we love you, we worship you. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. May God bless you this Christmas season and have mercy on your souls. All right. Have a fantastic Sunday.